Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam LeVinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where we speak to all kinds of entrepreneurs doing amazing things in business and beyond. Today's episode is brought to listeners in part by the Entrepreneurs Organization, the world's leading entrepreneurs group. EO is a global peer-to-peer network of more than 13,000 influential business owners in 58 countries around the world. EO is the catalyst that enables entrepreneurs to learn and grow from each other. And now the EO Toronto chapter is accepting a limited amount of qualified members. For more information on joining, visit eotoronto.ca and click apply. Today is an in-depth conversation with Saad Juman, a great software and healthcare technology entrepreneur who recently sold Policy Medical, the company he founded in his mother's basement over 17 years ago. In this episode, we get into Saad's role as a founder and then CEO and why those two roles are very different. Saad's motivation for selling, how the company prepared itself for sale, why Saad wanted an all-cash deal and why he was adamant about not making certain concessions during deal talks, life after the big exit, and so much more. Just a quick disclaimer, the mic settings were up a little too high on this one, which you probably won't notice if you're listening to us in your car, but certainly will pick up if you're listening on headphones. Super embarrassing to hear some high-fidelity breathing in spots, so our apologies in advance. We'll get that sorted out going forward. And with that, let's get to today's episode. Here is Saad Juman. I think where I want to start is just for people that aren't familiar with Policy Medical or had never heard the very first episode of the podcast, and, and part of it's embarrassing, and it's it's mainly because I was completely unprepared, uh, had never recorded a podcast before. So um, it's not that I suggest that everyone goes back and listen to episode one, but for those that just aren't familiar with USAD and what Policy Medical uh, as a company does, just give people the backstory. Sure. So, so Policy Medical at its onset uh, was a, or still is a niche document management software company, SaaS-based software company. Mm-hmm. Uh, within the healthcare space. So when I say niche, when we founded it, it was to manage a specific type of document within the hospital setting. Uh, and that document was policies, policies and procedures. So it's a, it's a very 
non-clinical document. For those of you that have ever been to a hospital, most of the listeners probably have at some point or another. Uh, it's it's the documentation that doesn't really make it into the clinical setting in, in that it, it doesn't really touch any kind of patient health information. So that was the first software application that we had built. And there was a need for that, uh, which kind of gave legs and a life to the company because regulations, especially in the U.S., had changed all those years ago, which mandated specifically how these healthcare providers and hospitals had to manage that document or else there were a bunch of consequences. Yeah, and that was a big market for you, right? I mean, you initially launched in 2001 out of Toronto, but I think your first customer was U.S.-based. Yeah, actually, the all, almost all of our customers, even at the at the end of the company, of my chapter of the company, were all U.S.-based. Uh, and the reason is because the model in the United States is very different than Canada. So the regulations and the regulators and the inspectors that would go in and monitor the hospitals, they would be able to give out stiffer penalties and levy uh, really harsh repercussions to the hospitals if they didn't fall in line with managing these documents correctly. Uh, you know, my co-founder and I years ago, uh, and, and he, he had left the company around 2007, but Josh and I, when we started the company, it was to originally go downtown Toronto on University Avenue where all the hospitals are to sell our product there. But we quickly were contacted by U.S. hospitals that taught us that there's a need in the United States. So that's kind of where we focused on. Hmm. What were the circumstances that led to Josh leaving? Uh, I think, you know, uh, you know, there's an old book, The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. You know, and there's a parable in that book that talks about, you know, if one were to start an apple pie company, uh, you know, at, at first there's the person that makes the and bakes the apple pies, and then there's the person that sells it. That was exactly how Josh and I started. Uh, he was the software developer coding uh, the application, my mother's basement, and I was the sales guy trying to sell the software in my mother's basement in East Toronto. Uh, but then as we grew over the years, um, the, the business just became more complex, right? There was a finance component and operations and human resources and everything else. And, uh, you know, my, my recollection of the events that transpired to, to Josh leaving was simply the business had grown one of us wanted to leave. Uh, one of us wanted to stay. Um, and I was the one that wanted to stay because uh, I was excited about the education around growing a company and learning how to build a venture like that. And, and that's, that's essentially how it transpired. Did you bring new partners into the business? And, and as the business was scaling, did you have a plan and a vision for what you thought you know, the company would look like post-Josh? Not initially. So... After Josh was bought out, because that's, that's how he'd left, uh, I was you know, left with 100% of the company. And I continued running it for maybe about a year and a half or so, approximately. And I realized that it had become a, a lifestyle business, you know, which was a business that would essentially provide for myself and my growing family as the operator, which really didn't interest me. It wasn't the original vision of the company. We wanted sort of a high-impact, high-growth company that would make a good positive impact on people's health. So once I realized that, I went out looking for mentorship originally to learn how to scale and grow a company. And that led me to finding a mentor, uh, but then also finding um, a partner, um, or I'd say uh, uh, another shareholder, somebody that came in as a shareholder 
uh, and, and worked as an operating partner to help grow the business. And then him and I together really kind of in retrospect crafted out like a three-phase process of rebuilding and reinventing the company. When you were talking to mentors for assistance as to how to map out your strategy going forward and how to scale this company that was, to your point, high impact, high growth, uh, moving away from the sort of the lifestyle business side of things. What key lessons did you learn from those mentors? And uh, was there one individual in particular that sort of gave you the best advice as you grew? I, I think there were two mentors that, that had the biggest impact. One is still a mentor to date. So that was mm-hmm. my, that is and was my general business mentor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's based in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And he never had any equity in the company or any stake in the company. And in a lot of ways, my view of, of men, traditional mentorship is it's purest when there's not an exchange of money or equity or shares or anything else like that. Mm-hmm. So he gave me some general business advice in terms of how to grow the company. But the other mentor and that mentorship relationship was short lived because then he became an, an operator and partner in the business. Um, he really encouraged me to refocus on the customers because that's really what Josh and I did in those earlier years intuitively. We would listen to the initial customers really carefully and try to build the product that was best for them. So that particular mentor, he was based out of California and he had become our chief medical officer. He encouraged me to get reconnected to the customers and I'd have to say, you know, I'm embarrassed to say that at that point, when we met, I had not really visited face-to-face across the table with some of our larger clients for years. Uh, because within healthcare, it's, it's, sometimes it's a little difficult to get the larger healthcare customers, but then uh, some of us almost take for granted that they're not going to go anywhere, right? Which is, which is not the right way to think about things. So he really encouraged me to get in front of those customers again and talk to them about what it would take to make the product really, really, I guess, in this era of entrepreneurship, they talk about stickiness, right? So mm-hmm. what would make the product super, super sticky and and make them think twice about ever getting rid of it? Customer satisfaction, customer feedback is, is critical to moving that needle for sure. What were some of the feedback, what was some of the feedback, I should say, when you started to visit the customers south of the border that you might've been surprised about? Uh, that, that they just thought the product was good. You know, and, and that's not a good thing. They, they thought it was, eh, it was good, but it wasn't something they were super excited about anymore. Um, and as other companies started coming into the ecosystem, like, like sort of generic file management systems uh, like Dropbox uh, and then Box.net and some of the larger, larger companies, you know, we started to see that, hmm, well, what is it that's going to make them stick with us, right? What, how do we make this product of ours really, really healthcare specific because we, had, we were always committed to servicing only healthcare and specifically hospitals. So that was the feedback they gave us. They said, you know what, it would be great if your product was more healthcare specific or hospital specific. And here are some of the features that would make it more beneficial to us from a healthcare perspective. So they started giving me that feedback and I literally started just writing it down in a moleskin notebook mm-hmm. uh, on, on all of my travels. Uh, and then I, I came kept on coming back to the office. And that's what led to, it was really a six-year reinvention of the business because at that point, you know, the business 
had really flatlined. It was, you know, almost on the verge, probably of bankruptcy at that point. Mm. Um, but we, we realized that we needed to double down on product and make this product really, really stellar, really, really great. So we spent about two years actually doing that. And that was, that was quite a feat, uh, actually doing that. So when the business had flatlined and you sort of felt like it was potentially on the verge of bankruptcy and significant changes needed to be made within the business, how long of a, of a transition was that until things started to tick up again? Uh, probably, probably four years. So four years. Okay. So yep. um, I'm sort of teeing this up for you. That's a, that's a long time, right? As an entrepreneur to... Um, sort of be at the helm of a business that is on this teeter-totter, on this brink of potential failure. What were you doing uh, as the CEO to navigate the company through that? Yeah, so so if I look at that four-year um, chunk of time, but really I'll talk about six years. So from the point where I was, I was, I had that moment of, uh-oh, well, this thing is just going to vanish in thin air if we don't do something, I had to make the decision and do a gut check to see if within my heart, I really wanted to stick with it, to try to turn it around if it was at all possible. So once I realized that I did want to do that, it took us about, and when I say us now, it was a slightly growing team, uh, the individual in California that was now heading up product. Uh, and he, he, he had an interesting mix, sort of the complementary skill set that I did not have. Mm -hmm. I'm not a clinician. I'm not from the healthcare world, even though I learned a whole lot about it over 17 and a half years. But he was a doctor, a cardiologist, and he had a technological background and built and exited a really successful healthcare technology company. So it was a really unique mix, uh, but he was super passionate about product. So now I had somebody on board that was really excited about product, and we had to rebuild the software completely. So not just features. We essentially rewrote the software because at that point, it was all old school on-premise software. So you're talking about every version in hundreds of hospitals uh, physically installed on their servers at the, at the hospital. So we needed to get control of that. We needed to figure out what language we're going to rebuild it in. And then we decided that we wanted to make it what's sort of table stakes now. We wanted to make it cloud-based. Mm -hmm. So back then, going cloud-based, I mean, it wasn't... It wasn't the easiest thing. It wasn't as mapped out in terms of a manual of, okay, here's how you do it. Um, so that was challenging in itself. And I think one thing that saved us from going out of business really fast at that time is our client base. We had, we had quite a few customers, but it wasn't large. So it was small enough where we could handle the migration process of migrating all these hospitals to the cloud. And it's not just a technological migration. It's also a contract migration we learned as well. Um, I didn't foresee that. So we had to go back to the hospitals and say, hey, by the way, we need you to sign new contracts. And also, by the way, you've been getting away with paying a really low sum of money on an old software licensing model from, let's say, the 90s or so. Mm -hmm. uh, and now there's this new subscription-based uh, uh, software pricing that actually will amount to more money every year that you're going to have to pay us if you choose to stay with us. Did all those customers come with you ultimately? Almost all of them came with us. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder those that didn't, what were those objections? Were they simply uh, adverse to the pricing? So healthcare is a really a late adopter. So the idea of having your data 
even though it was non-clinical and even though it wasn't patient data housed in the cloud was actually pretty scary for different customers, mm-hmm. especially customers that may have been sort of government owned in the United States. So those customers chose not to go to the cloud and ask us if they can remain having this, the application installed in-house. Um, so, but it was really, I can count on one hand how many customers chose to do that. Uh, and then in time, they ended up migrating over to, 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 to the actual cloud. And it's just a matter of the market changing, right? You saw, you know, they started seeing, um, you know, the Department of Defense or other really large government agencies just in the general news uh, moving data to things like AWS, Amazon Web Services, right? And that all started to give mm-hmm. people permission to say, okay, you know what? Maybe it's not so crazy, this whole cloud-based thing. Yeah, I think AWS powers a lot of the U.S. government, doesn't it? Um, I, can't, I can't comment, but I know that, that they, they power quite a few entities within, within healthcare, hmm. right? Uh, but other branches, I, I don't know. I, I think they've made great inroads in the, you know, the Veterans Affairs and perhaps the Department of of defense. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So I, I'd like to skip ahead uh, a little bit. So just a little bit of foreshadowing. I mean, this company, uh, Policy Medical, that you navigate through this, this four-year period, you come out the other side, uh, the business begins to scale successfully. Ultimately, you end up selling the company. We'll get to all of that in just a minute, but I want to ask you about the difference between uh, your role as a founder and your role as a CEO. Um, what are the differences? And in your opinion, what are the traits that make for a successful founder versus a successful CEO? Great, great question. I, I think it's a different mindset. And the exit has only been, while you're asking me the question, this is counting the months. It's only been 10 months since, since the exit. But I actually had to walk that bridge. While you were talking, I was envisioning it because hmm. it was actually brought to my attention by stakeholders within the company on our board, from mentors, et cetera, when we became serious, and I became serious about potentially selling the business and exiting, um, I realized that I'm going to need to move from entrepreneur founder, that mindset of maybe a a bit more of a freewheeling entrepreneur and cross a bridge to be a CEO. And I realized that I had to learn different skills. And some of those skills were really around Embracing data, first and foremost, mm-hmm. uh, to guide decisions. So using data to guide decisions as opposed to gut feel and emotion, emotion only. Um, so that was, all, that, that was a bit of a learning curve for me as well. Uh, one was having more patience and tact when uh, running meetings and, and board meetings and things like that. And, and I'm not saying I was tactless, but just being a bit more mature. And in some ways, kind of growing up uh, in terms of uh, how meetings would actually be run. And I think the last thing would also uh, just really embracing a little bit more of the traditional ways of running a business uh, when it comes to operations and human resources and not sort of intuitively doing different things like, you know, incentive plans for different departments or things like that. Um, I started to see the wisdom in some of the more traditional ways of of running a business. And an example of that would be, you know, several years before the exit, uh, we realized that it would make the exit a lot easier if 
we ran the business truly from a data and a data housing perspective mm-hmm. as if we were going to exit really, really soon. So the way we organized our contract, you know, creating a data room, uh, insisting on our financials being audited, um, you know, for a number of years before the exit, all of those things ended up paying dividends in the exit process because it showed potential acquirers that we were, we were uh, grown up or at least trying to grow up. How long were you in the CEO seat in total? I would say truly maybe two and a half years before the exit. Mm-hmm. Um, was there anybody on the board that was sort of questioning your ability as a CEO near the end in preparation for the sale? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, people internally and externally would, would, would question it. But, you know, our policy medical was so, and this is not a good thing as well. And, and we became... And I think that's one reason why we were able to exit the, the, the way we did. Uh, it wasn't really when you looked under the hood or under the kimono, it wasn't tethered anymore to me, you know, saw Juman personally anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, things are really, uh, people were empowered. Uh, departments were empowered. There were systems in place. So not everything was reliant upon me, but there was still the feel internally that everything was really sort of entangled with, with, with my personality. So really there was no real option for anyone else to really run the, the business at that particular point. I want to ask you about the, the how with respect to, to exit, how to exit your company. But first I want to ask you about the, the when piece. So I think a lot of entrepreneurs potentially confused, uh, maybe don't have clarity, I should say on when might be a good time to sell their company. Um, in your experience, when do you think uh, is, is a good time? So I think a good time in general, try to sell the business or think about or explore, just tinker with the idea of selling the business mm-hmm. is when the business absolutely does not need to be sold. So from a financial perspective, Policy Medical was growing really, really well. And there was no real need to sell the business. In fact, you know, there's still, you know, stakeholders that were in the business that are probably probably still question and I still hear these rumblings today that, oh, well, Saad, why did you want to sell the business now? You know, if we hung on for another two years, if we hung on for another five years, the value could have been even more because it was growing. There was no real need to sell it. So, so there's that. But then for myself as a founder, a principal shareholder, all of that type of stuff, my time to leave that business was actually probably overdue by about three years. Again, you know, I, from from starting it to exiting was 17 and a half years, which is a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Now, reinventing the business, you know, from a sort of a flatline position to a really vibrant, exciting company that people want to buy, it took six years to do that. But still, emotionally, it was over. It was probably overdue for me. So uh, a good friend of mine, he actually helped me with this particular concept. And for anybody listening, I don't know if it'll help you as well, but I knew inside of me, probably a couple of years before the exit, that I needed to leave. And I needed to leave because the business needed to continue to grow and it needed a different leader. And I wasn't going to be the best leader anymore. Uh, But I couldn't, a lot of people were asking me what my number was, you know, a financial number to sell the business because we had people continuing, companies starting to court us. And I couldn't come up with that number. But a friend of mine said, he's sort of an ex-Wall Street guy. He said, well, Saad, what if the number wasn't money? What if the number was a date? And I said, that's interesting. So, uh, you know, I meditate a lot and do these types of practices. So one day a date came to me, 
which was August 1st, 2018. So, you know, an old book that many of us have read is Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. I wrote a little affirmation along the lines of selling the business by that particular date. Mm -hmm. And then for a couple of years, I would kind of repeat that thing over and over again, just so it's kind of ingrained in my psyche. And, um, and maybe it worked, maybe it didn't work, but you know, the business ended up being sold, uh, July of 2018. How'd you know you weren't the leader? Like you said that you just intuitively knew that if the business was to move forward, uh, it needed to do so under different stewardship. How'd you know that? You know, I was just honest with myself. It just, because you're not, we're all not great at everything. And from a motivation perspective, Mm-hmm. I wasn't as motivated or excited about the business as I was before. So that, that was one, one indication, but I knew that there was no one else immediately that I could go out and hire to run a business like this as well as I could at that point. Um, and then also if it were continuing to grow. So even though I'd wanted to exit the company, I always had the mindset of if it wasn't going to exit, if it was going to continue on for five years or 10 years or, 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 or something like that, I had a plan B in case the exit didn't happen, which was to hire another president and CEO. Uh, and the resume that I would look for, for somebody to take policy medical to that next, next level, that same criteria I would look for in a, in a leadership team of a great CEO, a president and a CFO, I did not have the experience uh, that, that would be required to actually do that. Mm-hmm. So, and that's actually the same thing that I look for in the acquirer. Do you think that you found the right home in terms of the criteria that you were looking for? Yes. Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, we ran a very thorough process and the process was thorough and grueling and everything else. And, and I think, I think they're a great home. I think it's a, it's a good home and, and they've got experience doing this type of um, integration and transition because Certainly, we were not the first acquisition that, that they've ever made. And the team actually has you know, the, the criteria I made in my notebook of what my team needed to look like if the company wasn't going to be sold to continue to grow. Mm-hmm. This, the acquirer has that exact same team. And also the values and the, and the qualities, right? You know, the values that, uh, of, of honesty and integrity and, and, and all of the values that, that made a policy medical, um, based on our due diligence, they have those similar values as well. And from what I hear, you know, I'm not really, I'm not involved with the business anymore. Um, but from what I hear, the grapevine, uh, it's going really, really well. You alluded to this earlier, but the preparation with respect to getting your company ready for sale or ready to court prospective acquirers. So you talked about the data room, audited financials. What else went into the preparation process? We had a, a very detailed contract spreadsheet in Excel. So even though, you know, we, we had Salesforce and we had a very intricate system set up in Dropbox and everything else, one thing that helped as well in the due diligence process mm-hmm. was a, a very meticulous listing in Excel of all of our client contracts. And it wasn't just the name and the value. It was like the name, the value, um, how much we could, how much we agreed with that particular client that we're allowed to increase their rate per year uh, the renewal, you know, are they, what version or subversion are they on? It was very, very, very meticulous. So when different questions started coming back and forth uh, in the due diligence process, we were able to reference that thing and then drill down further into other uh, repositories to get the data that, that we needed. Were you working with an M&A firm to uh, target prospective buyers and, you know, prepare the SIM 
and the teaser and all the other documentation? Yes, absolutely. Did my research and, you know, from, and there's what I found out in the whole process is there's an investment banker that's in your niche. I mean, so whoever's listening to this, you know, if you run a sports tech company, there's a guy or a woman somewhere that specializes in just that type of transaction. So I ended up finding probably the, the ideal team. All they do is SaaS-based healthcare technology M&A work, um, and they had a specialization of handling Canadian firms like us, because we're a Canadian firm ultimately, um, being acquired by U.S. firms, which, which was important because you need to understand and be licensed on both sides of the border and, and all that type of stuff. Did they get it right on valuation? Um, yeah, they were, they were, uh, they were, they were, they were spot on. Yeah, we got a really high valuation, but they were, they were actually spot on, and they mm-hmm. guided us through the process. And you know, it was, it's the, it's also the intangible things that they do that you can't really put a, a price or a value on. So you know, at times during the negotiation, it's not probably appropriate for somebody in my position, let's say the one potentially being acquired, to be bad cops. Right. So at times, you know, they'll, they'll make those phone calls and, and, and fight for you a, a little bit on conference calls where you're not part of, right. To kind of smooth things over. So it's, it's those types of things that, that, that really pay off. We, we talked a lot about the preparation. We talked about the, when might be a good time to sell your company, how to sell a company. Do you have, uh, there's obviously, there's not a one size fits all. So with that caveat, uh, or disclaimer, do you have, sort of a playbook that you use to advise other entrepreneurs that say, Hey Saad, um, how do I sell my company? Uh, well, I think, I think the first thing is if you're going to go down that road, then be, be sure you want to do that. And don't, don't waver. Cause after the exit, you know, I've, I've spoken to people that have engaged um, in this process, but they're sort of back and forth mm-hmm. and they're back and forth because they're being tugged back and forth by people and in, in, by internal stakeholders. So if you want to sell it, be sure you want to do it and then move forward with, with conviction. So your CRM should be clean, books should be audited and, and super, super clean. Um, you should have a data room already set up. Uh, and then you should earmark members of your team that you kind of bring into the fold to help with the, the due diligence process. And I think also kind of creating your circle of trust. Right. So as the as the process goes on, being the CEO and the founder or somebody in this in this position, it becomes the circle starts getting more and more close. Right. It gets, as, as emotions run, run high, um, especially as the organization starts to find out about the potential acquisition. So I, I you know, I've spoken to people that didn't tell their people anything up until the acquisition was announced um, for us. Word got out a little bit, so we had a couple of weeks of, of people not really knowing what's going on, and that, that caused its own issues as well. But I think having your circle of trust of people that, that you go and you, re, you kind of rely on is really, really important. For me, it was our lawyer and our accountant. They ended up being people that were really, really dependable. And even the acquirers, they, they caught on to that as well. And they would always ask to speak to those people in, in the due diligence process. Looking back, like how transparent do you think an organization should be if this process is, is getting serious? And, you know, we're talking about uh, different approaches, obviously. Uh, s- some people feel like nobody should know anything. 
until the sale is announced. Other people believe in full transparency. Where do you sit? I think it's best to keep the circle as tight as possible um, to ideally amongst key executives of the company and obviously the shareholders. So Mm -hmm. we had employees that were shareholders that that were in the know, right? And they were asked to to keep it confidential um, because out of respect for them, their shareholders, they, they need to know. And the reason I would say don't expand it further is because in the process, anything could happen. Even in our exit, you know, two or three days before the exit, the whole thing could have gone sideways for all mm-hmm. I knew. And, and if that happened, then what happens, right? You know, what, what happens with all of the, uh, all of the emotions that are going on with, with the quote unquote regular employees? I think that's an important point. By the way, um, I think entrepreneurs underestimate the level of risk, even even leading up to the close date of the deal completely falling apart, depending on you know how nice everybody's playing the sandbox. I mean, things could really crumble uh, up until that close date. Unless that money is in the bank account, right? Then, then, then the deal is done. I mean, for us, I think instead of me just avoiding it, I did uh, two sets of meetings with the with the company. I met with all of the heads of the department, told them what was going on, honestly, um, and then I met with each department one by one. Mm. And with with all of them, I told them, I said, yes, we are thinking about selling the company, and there's going to be changes. Either the company is going to be sold very soon, or I'm going to be leaving the company either way and looking for a replacement for myself. Right, so I painted both out, and I, and I told them the reasons why that the company needs a great home, that we need all of these additional things in order for it to continue to grow. Um, and then many asked, "Are am I going to lose my job? Am I going to lose my job?" Mm-hmm. And I I wouldn't I didn't give them a direct answer for that because I didn't really know. Literally until like the day, probably the twenty four hours before everything was finalized, I really didn't know who had to be let go and who didn't. Right, so which which was very, very nerve wracking. But, um, you know, our, our transaction was supposed to be completed on July 3rd, but between us and the acquire, there was a bit of a mix up, I think in banking instructions or something like that, some kind of mundane logistical mix up, perhaps an RN. So it didn't happen on July 3rd, but guess what happened? July 4th is a holiday. Mm. So, so we have to wait an entire day until July 5th. By July 3rd, I had already indicated to, to the people that would be losing their job that they're going to be losing their jobs. What was your experience like dealing with a PE on the other side? There were a couple of times where in the negotiation process and the due diligence process, things were being asked of me and of us in terms of concessions mm-hmm. that I just wasn't comfortable with with doing. Such as? And... Um, let me see what I can, I have to be careful what I can disclose and what I can't, right? So, um, okay, such as the idea of a holdback, right? So mm. a holdback is quite standard uh, in, in terms, and by holdback, I mean, you know, you're getting paid X amount of money. So the acquirer will say, hey, we're going to hold this percentage back for a certain amount of time. It could be 12 months or 18 months or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, then at the end of that, if, if everything is good and, and you haven't misrepresented yourself in any way or nothing goes wrong, then then you, you get the rest of the holdback. I didn't want to hold back. Too risky for me. Mm-hmm. I understand their risk, but it's too risky for me as well. So, and I was, I was adamant 
on that. And, you know, one, one tip I would give, I'm, I'm, I don't want to jump around too much, but one tip I would give before I forget to anybody thinking about going through this is list down on a piece of paper your non-negotiable and don't waver from those. So for me, I wanted an all-cash deal. Um, I wanted a very quick transition, ideally, mm-hmm. but not a transition that would put the company in any kind of peril. And I wasn't going to budget that. So when it came to the holdback, going back to the holdback, I wasn't budging on that. But then we found out together because, you know, dealing with the acquire I contract and then the, and then involving the private equity firm, the, the, the leadership at the private equity firm, um, we found out that, hey, you know, we can get an insurance policy that insures the holdback. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we decided to split the premium of the policy. Um, so now, the, you know, we essentially transfer the risk of the holdback to the insurance company. And then we got all of our money up front. Hmm. Um, any other concessions that you can share? Uh, let me see. There was one around assignments. So the assignment of contracts. So when uh, you know when you sell the software company, I, I'm, I'm assuming it's the same for everyone else that sold the software company. Two of the things that are of utmost value. One is the technology, the code base, and the other. Um, are the client relationships or the contracts. Mm-hmm. So when it came to the client relationships and the contracts, there's this idea of assignability, meaning that, okay, we're acquiring you and we will over time need to assign all of the contracts to us as the acquirer. So what was asked of us and asked of me is, hey, you know what? Everything should go fine with the assignments, but for any of the assignments that we're not able to accomplish, then we will ask you to refund back some of the money. It's called a clawback. We're going to claw back some of the money um, based on the value of the contract multiplied by the valuation. Mm-hmm. So when I heard that, intuitively I was I thought, no, just I don't want to do that. I'm not comfortable with that. And then even the advisors on my side, you know, lawyers that we brought in that specialize in you know M and A, the M and A firm, I was told, no, no, this is standard. It's you know, it happens in every deal. It's going to be fine. But even though I kept on hearing it standard from the acquirer, from my own team, didn't feel standard inside of me. <laughs> so, so I said, I said no. Um, and then I had to talk with the, you know, at that point I had to talk with the acquirer and the PE firm. Um, and they decided to uh, go with what I wanted because I, because I said, I said, no, I said, you know what? I think the, I think the deal's over right now. I don't think we need to continue talking. And I wasn't bluffing at all. Right. And I think they knew I wasn't bluffing. And I, I said, I think we should just put our pencils down and I'm just going to keep on running the company and figure out plan B. That is but so they, gutsy though. You know, kudos to you f- for sticking to your guns, but difficult to do, certainly. Difficult. Yeah, it was, it was very, very difficult. You know, you know, majority of it was done through this essay of an email that I composed. Um, and I just, and I just sent to the, to, to, to them telling mm-hmm. me my feelings about it. And it was one of those things, you know, where you just write and I just, I was, I didn't even want to read it again to proofread it. Um, uh, I just wanted to send it before I changed my mind about sending it. Um, and I think, I think that, that did it with that. I want to ask you about this transition. So post exit life, this is something that you built in your mom's basement, you know, in 17 and a half years of hard work you sell. So, you know, the ultimate sort of quote unquote entrepreneurial story of bootstrapping something, scaling something and selling something. So huge achievement and big congratulations goes out to you. But but the other side of it, right? So so what happens next? And, you know, when you're so entrenched in, in a business for that long, what does it feel like to 
sell on the other side and, and um, have you know this lack of structure in your life now? Great, great, great question. And and th- thanks for the congratulations. You know, I'd, I'd also want to say, I know you didn't ask me this, but I just want to mention that, you know, I think the congratulations also goes to my family, you know, my wife and then my kids and even my mother and everything else for just putting up with it and supporting us for so many years. It's really like, no, those people get no real credit in forums like this, but without them, it just literally would not happen. They're almost equal partners in, in all of this. But in terms of how it feels like on the other side, I would say right now how it feels, is free uh, mm-hmm. for me. Um, I get asked a lot, even from my wife, you know, do you miss it? Do you miss being at the office? Do you miss it at all? Mm-hmm. And in my experience right now, it's, no, I haven't missed it at all. Not not one bit. Perhaps because it was overdue. And perhaps because I ran it for so long. Mm-hmm. Pretty wise person I met at a conference last year, like after the exit had happened in September. Apparently he's been through about 12 exits. And he told me the same thing that my wife asked me to do, which I am doing. He told me to take one year off to really do nothing. Don't commit to anything. Don't get involved really with anything formally because somewhere in that year, you move from a human doing to a human being. And I I can honestly say that a few months ago, I felt that transition. You know, even though I know that, you know, when the exit happened and after I was transitioned out, there's no more emails for me to get or anything else. I'd still, you know, like a monkey, I'd go to my computer Mm-hmm. log into Gmail expecting there's emails coming in, right? But there are no emails, there's nothing, right? So I, I move from that just like trying to do stuff every day to just really being and just doing things that really make me happy. Because in the year off, it's really I'm focusing on healing, kind of like healing myself in many different ways from the years of, of running that business. As you reflect back, what are the metaphorical wounds that, that you have carried that you are healing right now? from that entrepreneurial journey? If, if that question makes any sense, I don't know if it does, but. No, it does, it does, it does. Um, one would be running it for a little too long mm-hmm. that then was intended for me to do, right? And intended by just some power greater than me. So which led to, so the wound would be misalignment. It just wasn't in alignment and I knew it for some time. That's one. Uh, the other one was something I made a conscious decision many, many years ago to separate. Uh, but I, I can still, you know, feel that scar tissue, if you will, inside of me emotionally. And that's superimposing the identity of the business on who I really am. Uh, and really, you know, when the business was, was flatlining, you know, at, the, at those times, I felt like a failure. If the business had experienced some success, I felt really successful. But it's it's been ongoing work still today to kind of like separate my actual identity from the successes or failures of any kind of business or any kind of exit or, or anything else like that. Cause it really, it's, it's not really me at the end of the day. It's just the thing that I got to do for a period of time in this life. Yeah. I think those are good last words, man. Appreciate you doing this again. I always appreciate your perspective. There's a ton of great content here, Saad. Um, I normally give people the opportunity to plug, uh, whatever they want, but, um, this would be an interesting one, but I'll give you the opportunity to plug whatever you want um, or just tell people what you're working on and uh, where they can find out more about you. Sure, sure. So uh, in terms of finding out more about me, I, on purpose, I'm not really available online, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of any kind of social media. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what, I'm, what I am working on these days is I do carve out some time each week uh, to go and sit and think about what I want to do next. 
And I think that answer is kind of already in front of me because what I'm already doing is I'm helping to kind of mentor and coach entrepreneurs in my own way, right? And really, they move through business strategy to learnings from sort of internal modalities that they may learn uh, from what I might do with such as meditation to more sort of aligning themselves to who they are with, with their business. So I'm kind of just probably taking the next six months or so to figure out how to articulate that a little bit better so I can be of service to more entrepreneurs in that way as sort of a mentor and a coach. But that's kind of what my probably my next chapter looks like. And then I'll take it from there. Thank you so much for doing it, man. Really appreciate it. Always. Anytime. Anytime. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase, building subscription businesses for retail brands. Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wanna Bet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. No more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric acid. Electric acid.